0: Amen. It's good to see you guys, missed you, here to talk on identity tonight. Last time I was up here, shared about the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16, that you have the mind of Christ, what the mind of Christ gives you revelation, and how there's a battle going on for what you believe and think, because Proverbs 23.7, I listened to the podcast last week, Brian, unprovoked from me, quoted the same passage after the very first week I said it. And I'm going to give it to you again. That So as a man thinks within himself, so he is. Proverbs 23, 7. So a man thinks within himself, so he is. Perfect. So it can be shared tomorrow night too. We just want it to sink in. But this is mind-blowing that, that your mind is so strategic of what you think. Because what you think determines what you do and where you go. And I mentioned that when we talked about the mind of Christ having revelation, that the, the enemy does not want you to have any revelation. He's going to come against your mind to have a revelation about who you are. And that's what I'm going to talk about tonight. Is the single, unlocking, powerful truth of when you realize who you are in Christ. And we need a revelation of who we are. So it's not going to talk about that. And, and there's just not one message and identity like I could probably teach for like 40 years on different facets and details of it. But tonight I'm going to go after one specific area. And it's the area that originated the, the earliest lie in your faith. I'm going after the earliest lie you believed about you yourself when you came to faith. The day after you got saved, you made an association that was unbiblical in your mind. Your mind came into an agreement almost instantaneously with the lie. And a huge population of Christianity, I think today, still lives alongside this lie. And it's this, is that your relationship with God is linked to your behavior. Your relationship with God is linked to your behavior. That was the lie that entered The second after I'm saved, what now? I was like, uh oh. For most of my life, it's ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs. And you know what? My relationship with God, ups and downs, ups and downs, ups and downs. And there's an exact parallel. If I was doing good, my faith was doing good. If I was doing poorly, then you know what? My faith was in the garbage. And sure enough, you could see this parallel track. My life, if it was doing okay, God and I were okay. But if I fell into a struggle, I barely knew God during those struggle, struggling times. And over the course of my life, I probably set the record for most salvations of a single soul. Because I would feel like I blew it so bad that like, whew, like maybe I wasn't even saved to begin with. You know, like I can't, I got like make sure this like salvation thing is set. And so I'd go these ups and downs and rededicate my life and rededicate my life. And and when I'd hit rock bottom, I would like, you know, turn around and like I'd be super high. Like, yeah, like I'll never have this happen again until the cycle repeats. Up and down, relationship and behavior. That my behavior was influencing my relationship with God. And whenever I'd stumble, I had this awful, awful hanging-over-me perception that God was disappointed in me. And the disappointment of God severed my relationship with God time and time and time again. But notice the order I'm describing. If I was bad, then my relationship with God turned bad. If I was good, then my relationship with God turned good. Instead of, if my relationship is good, I find myself doing well. Instead of, if my relationship with God is broken, I find myself struggling. One precedes the other. And what I had, I would suggest that probably everyone in this room is probably faced and battled with at some point in time, is this thing called performance-based identity. That's what this is called. It's not just identity tonight, it's performance-based Identity that says, what I do determines who I am. If you have a relationship with God that can be influenced by your behavior, you have a performance-based identity. Let me say that again. If your relationship with God can be influenced by your behavior in the negative, then you have a performance-based identity. So instead of who I am determines what I do, it was the other way around. It's always like, well, I did this, therefore I am this. And that's why I don't call myself a sinner saved by grace anymore. It's one of the worst things you can say about yourself. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I was like, I was, all right? I'm a saint now. That's what the Bible declares you in Christ Jesus. Why? It's because when I would declare myself a sinner saved by grace, you know what I wanted to do? Sin. I keep calling myself a sinner. It's like, well, I'm not surprised that I'm sinning again. I'm a sinner. Right? You begin to declare yourself in the negative. You find yourself participating in the exact lie you're declaring about yourself. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a pornographer. You will find yourself struggling in the very thing you declare over yourself. So today I'm like, I'm a saint. I was a sinner saved by grace, but now I'm a saint. Because if I keep saying I'm a sinner saved by grace, I'm going to keep sinning and needing more grace. And this is what I learned is that identity precedes behavior. If you get anything tonight, it's that is identity precedes behavior. You have a problem with what you're doing once you look at what you believe. Stop trying to medicate the symptom and treat the source. Identity precedes behavior. Ever since I started walking in that I'm a redeemed, holy, righteous before God, it says you are the righteousness of Christ. One night I'm going to share like all the things that Jesus says about you. It'll blow your mind. Once I start walking in that, noticing that I see myself completely different than Jesus sees me. I think his opinion's better. I'm going to try living in that frame of mindset. Suddenly, I found my behavior's falling into line with my identity. So why does this lie remain in so many hearts? Why does this lie persist and unchallenged in so many people? Well, it's kind of tricky because this lie has a certain benefit to it. This lie has a certain benefit to it in the way that a performance identity says it's easier to obey rules than it is to open your heart. A performance-based identity says that it's easier for me to follow rules than actually develop intimacy with God. Performance-based identity always prefers obedience instead of intimacy. It seems to be the shortcut on the Christian road. It's also a shortcut on how you disciple people. Buckle up. It is far easier for you to engage with someone in discipleship and just talk about what they need to be doing in the flesh and never address their heart. It's far easier to disciple people into obedience about their flesh rather than cultivating their heart towards God. It's easier for you to sit across someone and say, hey, just don't get drunk, don't have sex, don't Don't do these things, but make sure you tithe and you will look like everyone who else loves God. But there's a problem there. You can beat yourself into submission to looking like someone who loves God, but you don't love God. Because you're so focused trying to bring the flesh into obedience, you never actually come into relationship with your heart with God because you can be discipled into that lie that what you do is who you are. You can be discipled into lie all day long. And so, our discipleship methods I'm not pointing fingers at any particular group, but a lot of our discipleship methods produce Christian zombies who are trained only on not sinning and never learn to connect to the heart of God. Let me say that again. We have discipleship methods that is only tunnel vision on the flesh and is creating Christian zombies whose sole focus is to not sin, and they miss the heart of God. Something that I learned in this process is that you will not fall in love by beating your flesh into obedience. But when you fall in love with God, when you encounter his heart, you take authority over all the flesh and you tell it what to do. Obedience never produces relationship. You can have obedience without love. Just because you're obedient doesn't mean you love someone. I obey my tax laws. I do not love the IRS. (laughs) But when you love, every decision is submitted to that love. Now, this is Pharisee 101, okay? This is like ruffling your feathers. Let me tell you what Jesus said to the Pharisees. To those who got every single thing right, they, they tithe on mint and little leafs, and they're like, I got it perfect. And he said, You do everything perfectly well. You have brought yourself into obedience, and with inside your heart, all uncleanliness resides. Essentially, saying that you are the most wicked of them all in your heart. God does not want obedience without the heart. Can I share something that's totally crazy? This is like 12 hours old for me. God does not want obedience without the heart. I was listening to a podcast by Jonathan Welton, who's blowing my mind recently, and he mentioned this one little detail, that the old covenant was not God's idea. It's man's idea. It's like, that's weird. That's weird it stuck with me. So this morning, I'm thinking back, like, on the same thing about obedience never produces relationship. And think about the nation of Israel and how they tried to be obedient, but they always blew it, right? Now, why is that? So I go back to Exodus 19, right when the Old Covenant's being established. Well, the Old Covenant's established in chapter 22, but 19, I open up my Bible In one particular translation. And God says, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests if you obey my commands. Obey my commands, I'll make you a kingdom of priests. Now, kingdom of priests is very specific for me. Why? It's because that is what Peter calls us who are in Christ as Christians. In Revelation, it also identifies you as a kingdom of priests in the new covenant. Now, this is the old covenant, okay? And God says, I want to make you kingdom of priests, so obey my commands. You guys with me? One problem. That's not what it says. So what troubles me about this? I look it up in the Hebrew. This is Exodus 19. Look this up for yourself, Please. Says I, my NIV or whatever translation you have probably says, "Obey my commands." But I look at the words in the Hebrews, and the words are shema, shema, cool, shema, cool. Everyone say that shema, cool. Now, one translation says, "Obey commands." The problem means the problem is is that shema means listen, cool means voice. God says, listen to my voice, I will make you a kingdom of priests. How many know that obey my commands and listen to my voice are two radically different thoughts? So God's here saying, I'm going to make you a kingdom of priests, which is something that we now walk in the new covenant. He says, if you listen to my voice, and here's what Moses went back, and the Israelites said in return, they said, "Davar Asa." Everyone say, "Davar asa." davar Asa." That's what Israel said. And you know what that means? It means command. We do. God said, "I'm going to make you kingdom of priests. Listen to my voice." Israel says, give us rules, we'll follow. Are you guys with me? God's original desire was relationship. Israel preferred rules. And God says, I'll make you kingdom of priests, plural, kingdom, like a lot of priests. How many priests were there in the nation? One. He could enter the Holy of Holies one time. They so messed it up, they said, I would much rather have a list of rules to follow than work for your heart. That's how the old covenant was established. Now, if this doesn't blow your mind, like for me, I just must be like really geeky. Because there's something about it like, well, no, God instilled and established the old covenant. But when I look at that, God's original heart was to say, I'm at it for the relationship. I don't care if you eat the pig with the hoof. After all, I am wearing bacon socks tonight. (laughs) But God said, listen to my voice, and let's look at what the Bible says about the Old Covenant. How did that work for them? Hebrews 7.18 says, For the law is weak and useless, for it made nothing perfect. The law, this is not my words. Don't get mad at me. This is in your Bible. Hebrews 7, 18, the law is weak and useless for it made nothing perfect. Now it makes sense that this was man's idea. Some other time I'll teach on this in deeper depth, but isn't that crazy? Just so you have a little bit of uh aha behind this message. So let me share three stories real quick about this in rejecting the performance-based identity. I wish we had the passages on the screen, so I'm just going to read them to you. This is Matthew 3. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it, be, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven opened up and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I am well pleased. At this moment, Jesus is 30 years old. He's 30 years old and Jesus gets baptized and the Father opens the heavens and is like, this is my son who I'm well pleased. Right? Something much more better than that. He, but of course, right, and this is Jesus, like you are the son of God, you know. And so Jesus is 30 here and so obviously the Father's like, I'm well pleased with you because we've got to think of all the miracles he's done, all the demons he's cast out all the blind that are now seen, all the amazing things he's done, right? What? Who said that? Heresy. Let's look at the miracles Jesus did up to this point. Nada. Jesus is 30. He's a carpenter. We don't know if he's even a good carpenter. The Bible doesn't tell us. Noticeably absent are the mentions of Jesus' carpentry skills. (laughs) Not one sermon preached, not one person healed, not one miracle performed, not one storm stopped, not one dead person raised, and here God says, I'm well pleased with you. Now consider this. If God wanted to make this statement, if the Father wanted to make this statement, he could have done it I don't know, 30 years prior. If you feel sad that you haven't accomplished anything a you're in 28, don't feel bad because Jesus was 30 and he really didn't do anything either. But the father waited 30 years to say this. Could have said it at the birth. Definitely could have said it in his teens. For sure could have said it down the road. Any other time in 30 years, the father could have said, I'm pleased with you, my son. But he chose to do that at baptism why? What does baptism signify? Salvation. The going down in the water and coming up, it signifies salvation. God wanted to draw the line that all you need to do to receive the fullness of the Father's pleasures to receive him. There's no other reason that Jesus would receive the Father's pleasure than a baptism if he did want to make a point that when we're baptized and we're transformed when we receive him, that is what qualifies us to receive the unmerited pleasure of the Father. Not doing anything, not performing, but because you, you are who you are. And this is completely contrary to how we feel deserving of God's uh, pleasure. It's human nature to deserve uh, to, to do something to deserve something, isn't it? My little girl, this is a story about six months ago when she was three. Now, we have a bedtime routine that takes about four and a half hours. <laughs> it's like my work day starts when I start doing the bedtime routine with her. We go through the routine, and at the end of it, I'm like laying next to her, and I said, Scarlett, I'm so proud of you. She laughs at me. I'm like, what's funny? She's like, I didn't do anything. It's like, no, I'm proud of you. She's like, why for? That's how she said it exactly. Why for? Why for? Because I'm proud of you. Why for? She could not close the gap. Like, it didn't make sense to her. She's like, I haven't done anything. It's like, but you're my daughter. I'm pleased with you because you are who you are. And here I am for about 45 minutes trying to convince a (laughs) three-year-old that I'm pleased with her because of just nothing that she's done, but because who she belongs to and who she is. I never was able to win that argument. (laughs) It's naturally ingrained into us. It is unnatural to say, God, I accept that you are pleased with me despite me failing and stumbling. God is pleased with you because you belong to him. Pleasing God is no more complicated than receiving him. The point of this is that God is pleased with you before you do anything. God is pleased with you. Before. The second story I have for you is Mary and Martha. This is Luke 10. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. Martha's the host. Keep that in mind. Martha had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what Jesus said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sisters left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. So Martha says. Jesus answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. The one who made an impression on Jesus was the one not trying to impress him. The one who impressed Jesus was the one who wasn't trying to impress him. God is more concerned that you hear his voice and sit at his feet than doing something productive for him. Few things are needed, is what Jesus says, and he's like, actually one, that you're connected to me. Few things are available, but one thing matters, that you're connected to me. Christians can get so preoccupied in doing something for God, they forget to be in his presence and be connected to God. That was the struggle for me. It's that I get so busy, like I need to to affirm and justify my performance so that I have the right position and relationship with God, not that I am a son and I don't need to work to have his favor. And so Jesus would rather have you receive from him than do something for him. See, Martha got caught up in doing things for the Lord that the Lord wasn't asking her. Did you catch that? Jesus basically saying, like, you're the one who decided to, like, make a whole mess of this deal. I, didn't, I, I love it that you want to be a good host, but you are stressing your out, yourself out for things I'm not asking of you. God never wants the results without the relationship. Now, this might agitate those in the Christian kingdom who insist that your value as a Christian is based on the works that you do. I'm not suggesting by any means that we aren't contributing and moving in the power of God and expanding the kingdom. Not saying that at all. But what I am saying is that relationship comes first and demonstrations come second. Because you know me, I love Christian action. Thousand acts of kind? Like, I love, like, let's do it, charge! I'm not at all suggesting that we just need to, like, sit back on salvation cruise control. See you in heaven. I'm just saying that what we do must originate from who we are and who God says we are and what we believe. The point is that God prefers connection over works, that works flow from relationship and works cannot produce relationship. The final story is this because I know there's someone out there that's like, yeah, but, um, but God's pleased with me until I blow it, and then he's pissed. Like, he's, he's happy with me, like, when I got saved. I, I, got a, I got a lot of people that are having issues with some things I've said recently. Not a lot of people. I, actually, there's three. But for me, that's like a new record. <laughs> and it's all centered around, well, like, they, they want me to, like, you are the most awful sinner ever, and you should, like, be smitten from the earth, you know, or something. And then they have a really hard time with being that God redeemed you once for all time. Really hard time with that. They're like, but I got saved, but I need continual forgiveness for new sins because my new sins go uncovered. New sins, future sins. They're all concerned about future sins. When did Jesus go on the cross? 2,000 years ago. All your sins are future sins. Just saying on that. I don't know. But that's a different message that I will come back to later. That's not the story I want to say. Is that this, is that, well, maybe God is proud of me now and I'm saved, but man, after I blow it, like, he's going to be disappointed in me. Let's take it from a different angle, the prodigal son. Let me give you this story really fast. This is Luke 15. And he said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Stop right there. In Jewish culture, when he said, I want my inheritance, it meant, I want you dead. A son does not get his inheritance until the passing of his father. The youngest son basically walked up to dad's like, I wish you were dead. Give me what is mine. There could not be a larger violation of relationship in those words. It's not like, oh, give me $200. It's like, I wish you were dead, and give me what is yours to be mine. It says, so he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Notice how the response, the natural response is to regain relationship through work. The natural response was to perform in order to be brought back into good standing with his father. Verse 20 says, So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his men, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf and let us eat and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and now he is found. Let us now celebrate. Let me point out a couple things in the story is when the son failed his first inclination was to reject his identity as a son. I'm no longer worthy to be called a son, he said in response to his failure. His first inclination was to invalidate who he was. Why? It's because his behavior didn't match his identity. And his response was to perform his way back into the relationship. But the best thing to notice about it all is the father. The story is really about the father. While we look at the son and we pick up the, the hints that he rejected his identity, he wants to work back into his good standing, the father was awesome because the father, A, was looking out for the son, waiting for him. The next the father, like, ran for him. I will never forget when Dwayne Coleman, like, shared this story. He talked about like Jewish culture, like they're in robes, right? And you don't run in robes. They're huge and heavy. And so for the father to like pick up this massive robe, like they don't run, right? They like, they're very humble men in Jewish culture. Picking up a robe, you don't show your legs, okay? And running, sprinting after his son. Crazy. The son, again, before the father says, I don't deserve to be called your son. I am unworthy to be called your son. And the father said, nothing. Ignored it. Remember that the father doesn't keep record of wrongs? Yes. Completely ignored it. Didn't even mention it. Just went on right by. And it hit me is that the father does not care how it looks on him when he receives back someone who's completely blown it. God doesn't need to like protect his, you know, honor and make you feel really bad. If a Jewish man in this this imagery is picking up a robe and doing the most embarrassing thing a Jewish man can do to receive his son who basically said, I want you dead. Give me everything. How great the Father is for us whenever we stumble and get back up. And the Father completely rejected the son's request that he'd not be acknowledged as a son. He's like, I'm going to put the ring on you, put the sandals on you, we're going to celebrate. The point is that God is pleased with you despite what you do. God is pleased with you even if you messed up because his pleasure for you is based that you belong to him, not what you can do for him. Let me end with this. Here's what no one told me. I had great Christian leaders growing up. Here's what no one told me in this up and down, up and down, up and down phase. Always trying to disciple my flesh, never addressing my heart. No one told me that God is never disappointed in you. Nowhere along the lines did I ever hear like the thought that God was not disappointed in you. I thought it was like obvious, like, well, duh. Did you see what I did? God's obviously disappointed in you. If someone was said, like, no, God is pleased with you in my failure, you can stand straight in the face of someone's worst mistake of their life and you can confidently say, God is pleased with you. Maybe God has a different opinion about what happened. Maybe you could have made some better choices, but that does not void his pleasure for you who belong to him. Yeah, but God is pleased with you. But you don't understand how God is pleased with you. But what if God is pleased? Don't don't make me say it again. (laughs) That should be the response. When we take away this cloud of disappointment that can cover us, because, man, I would fabricate these clouds, and when you fabricate a cloud that follows you, it's hard for it to go away because you brought it there. And I fabricated this disappointment cloud over my life with God. That could have been broken by it. That's a lie that's following you because the Father is pleased with you. He separates what you do from who you are. When God looks at you, he is proud of you because he sees the Son in you, on you, in you. <laughs> it's, you are the righteousness of Christ. It's impossible for the Father to look at you and see anything but the Son. Again, when we, when we really come in touch with that, it should change everything. Identity precedes behavior. And now as a father myself, this makes total sense. Scarlett might do things that need correction, but nothing she'll ever do would cut off relationship. Ever. Behavior should never cut off relationship with a father. When Scarlett misbehaves, she knows it too. You know what she does? She leaves me. I'm not like, how dare you? When she knows that she did something wrong, she leaves. It's in your nature, it's in your flesh, to have this tendency to perform to deserve your identity. And the sooner that you can come and walk in the truth that I am who I am because I belong to God, that God loves me because I belong to him and no other reason before I did anything and even after I did all the wrong things, God is proud of you. His pleasure is on you. You belong to him. You can't mess it up. He empowers you to live a great life, but it does not create disappointment over you. And so I'm very, very careful. If there's one parenting trick, this is not meant to be a parenting message, but for me, this has so rattled me that I'm very cognizant that I will never utter the words, I'm disappointed in you to my children. I don't know if there's a more damaging thing to say. I will never say, I'm disappointed in you. We use the words, I'm sad. Well, Scarlett, when you hit Matt with a frying pan, that makes Daddy sad which is accurate. But she gets it. She's sad because like, like I care, but she doesn't pin the sadness upon her. She knows that I look at the situation, and I, can, I can regret the situation, I can have different thoughts about the situation, but it doesn't translate to her. I have the pride and the pleasure over her because she belong, belongs to me. And you know what? She doesn't want daddy to be sad over any situation. That's what's awesome. i have one of the most well-behaved little girls ever. Like it defies our, like, we're not that good of parents. Well, we're pretty good, but we're not like, she is exceptionally good. And I'm totally convinced because she's been able to walk in that we're pleased with her no matter what, and the situations make us sad, but there's nothing that she can do that make us love her any less or be ashamed of her or be disappointed in her. And the response is that she wants to walk in the way that we want her to walk in. Identity precedes behavior. I love you guys.